So last week I spoke about delusion and how painful it is to be constantly misperceiving the world. And then Patricia went on to talk about wisdom, which fortunately helped to alleviate our delusion to some extent, to help us to begin to see how this constructed world, the the world of thought, it really um, construes a, a belief system, a reality that is not true, but that, that through wisdom we can begin to see clearly and to see in accordance with the way things actually are. And so tonight I'd like to move into compassion because wisdom and compassion are really the wings of our hearts. That on one side, we have this side of wisdom, this clear scene. And on the other side, we have the responsiveness of the heart. And they really need to be in balance. They both need to be there. If we have wisdom without compassion, we can get uh, really dry. It's like there's a brilliance there, but we can't embody it. We can't fully bring that wisdom into being on the level of the relative level. And with that, uh, there's actually a... What is it? Can I remember it? Oh, yes, a, a, a saying that really kind of depicts this, and I'm not sure who said it, but it's like a lonely hermit sitting in an ivory tower. And so this is where wisdom isn't balanced with compassion. It hasn't brought that wisdom into the living reality of our interconnectedness where the wisdom then manifests as a responsiveness to suffering. Or if we have compassion not balanced by wisdom, we can feel like we want to help but we're continually bound in how to do that, what to do. We get lost in our emotional responsiveness rather than a responsiveness that is clarified through wisdom. So these two are really important that our practice embraces both. And so then... Um, For those of you who've been here for a few weeks, you know that I like to venture into, for me, the felt sense of what I'm speaking about. And so, you know, I was sitting today, and it was compassion. And, I, you know, on the surface of it, going into sitting down to prepare for it, compassion is a beautiful quality of heart and mind. And, you know, so there was a joy and, wow, you know, just being able to share something about this quality, which is so beautiful in the world, in our experience. It gives, it helps us to really bear witness as we practice. But then, what is it that really evokes this compassion? And it's when we really look into suffering when we allow our hearts to open with tenderness to the brutality 
that we can experience as human beings. That you know, life in this human realm has many different challenges with it. And sometimes the world seems brutal, harsh. That living in this body at times with this mind can be excruciating. And when I started to really shift to, whoa, this is where we touch into compassion, there, there was what is the natural response, the quivering, the, the trembling of the heart in the face of suffering. But there was also this knowing it's not always easy to open to this that it can feel so overwhelming at times that we want to turn our backs, that we harden in the face of it. You know, that in that face of suffering, that just, you know, even if we're trying to be with it at times, it's more like a bearing it, but it's a tensing and tightening in the face of, rather than an opening, a touching, a responsiveness. And when I just was looking at what it is like to be a human being, I felt this real ache of the heart. You know, and I remembered back to my youth and how challenging it was to make sense of this world that I was born into and to, to see around me people acting in really harsh and harmful ways to want to help but not to have a clue how to do this and to feel confused with that. But within that is something that we all feel, have come to feel in our own lives, that pull to alleviate that suffering. And that is compassion. I wanted to share with you um, a song that really helps me in some way, every time I hear it, to touch into compassion. And in doing so, pointing the mind towards the suffering, but also the grace, the peace, the kindness that can come with this. And this is... um, Even in the title, it points towards the quality of compassion. It's by a woman named Jennifer Berezin. And she is a a singer, songwriter, and she also really has Buddhist leanings. I don't know to what extent, so I I, I just won't speak about that. But the, the name of the song, In These Arms, A Song for All Beings. And in the dedication, she says, it's dedicated to our shared brokenheartedness amidst the world's suffering and our common desire to meet that suffering with courage, service, and great compassion. Uh, Just even the words, our shared brokenheartedness. This is what we we encounter as human beings that you know we have a nobility of heart 
and somewhere it gets trashed at times. You know, somewhere we just feel so cut off from it. And, or, we, you know, we look at the world and it just defies what this, this tenderness of heart feels capable of, the nobility of heart that on, on some level we know is there, but we don't see it so often reflected in the world around us. And this, you know, it's gut-wrenching at times. It's painful. And then just our, when she also speaks about our common desire to meet that suffering with courage, service, and great compassion. You know, in the scene of it, it gives rise to this nobility of heart. And so this is the lyrics from the song. I cannot turn my eyes, I cannot count the hearts of all that has been broken, all that has been lost. I cannot understand the suffering that life brings, war and hate and hunger and a million other things. When I have done all that I can and I try to do my part, let sorrow be the doorway to an open heart. And the light on the hill is full of mercy. The wind in the trees, it comes to see me. I long to hold the whole world in these arms. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings everywhere be free. And this is really, to me, something of the reflection of our heart's song. I find compassion so humbling to speak about because there is no way that one wants to trivialize suffering, to blanket it over in a way that minimizes it. But in the scene of suffering, this is the very place our hearts can crack open. There's a line from a Leonard Cohen song, and I don't know if I've got it quite right, but something to the effect of, there's a crack in everything. And this is what lets the light in. No, it's when we really let our hearts and minds not turn our backs on suffering, but let it permeate our heart. When we don't harden, but let the heart crack open, we experience this quivering, trembling, a responsiveness of the heart to alleviate this suffering. And this is what compassion is. This pull, this cry, this responsiveness to find the end of suffering. This quality of compassion 
is one of the qualities of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abidings, or our natural home. Now this quality of compassion is there when our vision is unobscured, when we can see clearly. It's the responsiveness of wisdom. And it's something that's always there in our experience. It's something that's constantly moving us. You know, it's what brings us to practice. It's what brings us to sit here day after day, to really want to find freedom, to want to be able to live in this world in a way where we're just not adding to the problems of the world, where we're not you know, just stoking that fire. The Brahma Viharas, as you probably all know, are loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. These are all beautiful qualities that are our natural home. And through our practice, we become more familiar with these qualities. We can look to see how they are present. We can attune our hearts and minds to the seeing of these qualities because this is what helps them to become strengthened. This is what helps us to really have them be the guiding qualities in our lives. And so just by attuning our, our vision, being able to see how they are present, being able to see how compassion is present as we practice. You know, when we've been caught in some horrible mind state, and instead of reacting or moving into self-judgment, into blame, our heart simply softens. We relax. There's a tenderness. Or there's patience with the repetitive habits that we have. This, too, is compassion, where we don't turn our backs on our own suffering, where we have that willingness to see that, oh, this is painful, this hurts, this is compassion. So compassion helps us to bring us to every sitting that we do in a day, to every walking period, to every moment when we look to our own experience. It's motivated, it's based in this quality of compassion. So it's very much there in our experience. Can we recognize it? Can we see it? And of course, it gets strengthened when we are faced with suffering and we don't turn our backs because it is the responsiveness. You know, the quality of compassion is not just the quivering, trembling of the heart, the empathetic connection with suffering, but it's also the pull to alleviate that suffering. 
it's a verb. And so it's that intention to be mindful, being based in compassion. Seeing if we can just feel that, notice that. Seeing how ever-present this quality is because it helps to uplift the mind, to know that the work, the practice that we're doing is based in compassion despite what we may judge the results to be. You know, we, have, we turn up with the intention every day to do the best that we can, and then at the end of the day we go, that sucks. You know, I didn't really do well today, but our intention was there. We, we think that it's bad when we define our experience by whether our experiences were pleasant, the way we liked it, unpleasant, which led to aversion, not liking, but not just in that we really did the best that we could. That we, we carved out this whole period in our life to be here, to do this exploration, because of this cry to alleviate suffering. So recognize it. Appreciate it. Let it be illuminated. You know, we're so good at looking in the mirror and seeing everything that we think is not okay. You know, we look, there can be ten positive qualities and we see the one thing that we don't like. That's our habit of mind. So as we strengthen this quality of compassion, let yourself recognize it. Let it be seen, appreciated. And this is the quality of appreciative joy. Just appreciating that it is here, that it is motivating us. And letting go of attachment to the result. Really resting in in that this depth of compassion has pulled you here. This quality of compassion has within it a courageousness of heart. Because we do have this tendency to want to shut down, push away, pull away, reject, ignore suffering. And so it's really an about face when we let ourselves see, feel, touch that suffering. And we can't do it if we're stopped by fear. I want to say that courageousness in itself often doesn't feel like it's free of fear, but we aren't stopped by the fear. We have the capacity to move through that fear and to really allow, be with, have that tenderness of heart. It's a courageousness of heart that allows us to be bigger than ourselves, to really step outside of holding back to protect this sense of self, but to move into directly the alleviation of this pain, 
of the suffering. There's so many stories in the world of how when people are really moved in the face of suffering, how they just respond. You know, just that responsiveness. There's little ways that we see it. I had a dog once whom I dearly loved, and she was such a great teacher in so many ways. But she was so beautiful. Uh, she loved to help the underdog in any situation. And she wasn't a big dog, you know, she was some, you know, small, medium sized dog. Um, but in, in the face of another being in suffering, she would find a responsiveness. And some, you know, I don't know what science makes of it, but I just witnessed her so many times respond in different ways. So one day, there was this little puppy and these bigger dogs around. And it started out playing, so little puppy playing with big dogs, big dogs getting more and more brutal with little puppy. And my dog, Kama, could see this, or it seemed like she could see it. Because what she did in that moment, it's like, it was like I could watch her. She was looking at the situation, and then over to the right was a tin can. And so she went, and she started batting around that tin can, and soon all of the big dogs lost interest in harassing this little puppy and joined in the game with the tin can. No, it was just a simple act of seeing how one could alleviate the suffering in that circumstance. Then, you know, little acts of kindness. Walking, I was one day walking across um, Gaston Pond, a pond around here, that was frozen. It was winter time. And as I was walking across the pond, I was accompanied by two friends. Uh, one friend was from Australia, and she'd never walked on ice before. She was in disbelief that this could be done. But me and my other friend were, you know, like saying, no problem, it's frozen, we're okay. Um, you don't need to worry. And so she was scared, so we walked on either side of her to give her some comfort in walking across. When we got to the other edge of the pond, I fell through. (laughs) What was so interesting was, she was the one who reached out to help me. You know, it was just that responsiveness, that in that moment, that seeing someone struggling and reaching out to help. Fortunately, I was close to the edge, and it wasn't a major catastrophe. Um, But there's little things that we do. You know, have you ever just been walking down the street, and you've seen someone, a child crying, and you just thought to say, hello, can I help you? 
little acts of kindness. They're huge. Remember a moment in your own life when you were in suffering and somebody just stopped to hear you, to listen. What that felt like. How powerful that is when somebody just didn't turn their back. But they let themselves be there with you in your pain. So often when there's a cry of suffering, you know, and, and right now I'm thinking in particular, remembering in, in my own practice where you know, just at different times, the, the, the things that would come up in the mind that would be troublesome, that would be a stumbling block, that moments of frustration and getting caught in the frustration, moments of sorrow and identifying with the sorrow, moments of anger and really being in a rage, being caught. And then just noticing what happens when you turn and allow that suffering to be felt. What happens there? One time I was practicing, and in seeing this, I just had this sense of being a mother of 10,000 things. Now all of our different experiences, all crying out for attention. And just by acknowledging, being with, letting them be touched, they could relax. They weren't no longer clamoring for attention. We really let our hearts be open. We open to our own suffering. We open to the suffering of the world. There's a beautiful line from Ryokan, who was a a Zen hermit monk. He said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. And that's the feeling of tenderness that comes with, with compassion. Just that sense of wanting to gather up, to hold, to, to be that balm to suffering. And we can do this in our own experience when we are really hurting, when we're in pain. That gathering around, that holding. You know, at times holding ourselves as if we are a small child caught in suffering. There's a real sense of connection with the suffering that brings a sweetness. It's not funny. Compassion is is this funny mix of sadness and tenderness, sweetness. And the sadness comes because we feel we are in contact with the suffering. We're not glossing it over. And there's the sweetness of connection, being with. You 
And this is where compassion really needs to be balanced with wisdom. Because if we just try to open to all of the suffering on the relative level, which the the Buddha said that if you put all the water of the four oceans together, or all of the oceans, I don't know how many oceans there are, this would be nothing in comparison with the tears that have been shed through suffering. So suffering is not something that's just common to this world now. Suffering, since human beings, living beings, have been and been lost in, in delusion, there has been this immensity of pain and all the tears that have been shed. If we didn't know that that, if we thought that that's all that there is, we would become broken by it. We would become shattered by it. We would become immobilized in the face of it. But when there is this element of wisdom, we begin to see this optical illusion of self. This comes through the clear seeing. And we begin to see that within, behind this optical illusion is a mind that is free, a mind that is wise, a mind that is kind, compassionate. And it's this balance of wisdom that helps us to know in the world where we can help and where we can just allow to to have the wisdom to know that there is a certain level where we have to let things be just as they are, where we need equanimity, where to know where we can affect change and to know when something is running its lawful course. So we really need these two qualities to be working together in our experience. When we think of compassion, we so often think of it in terms of other, in terms of compassion for the world around us. But it is really essential that we also have self-compassion, that we also have this capacity to bear witness to our own pain. Because in this way, it is in a, in a sense a way in which we never give up on ourselves that we stay true to our hearts when we're caught, when we're in struggle, that we, we align with the nobility of heart and our potential rather than getting caught in the fragments, getting caught in the brokenness, the brokenheartedness. There is what's called the near enemy of compassion, and that is pity. That is where there is a sense of separation 
with the suffering, where in some way we may be looking down upon someone who is in suffering, oh, that poor being, but that it isn't the touching or the standing with the suffering. And we find that we fall into pity when we don't know how to be with our own pain. And this is why another reason why self-compassion is so essential. Because if, we, if we're afraid of our own pain, we're afraid of our own suffering, how can we possibly open to the suffering of others? And so that's where we fall into pity. It's really based in fear, based in the, the fear of being overwhelmed by the suffering. It appears like compassion can have uh, look like compassion on some level, but it doesn't have that connection. It's distance in some way. And, and so you know, there's a, such a difference between somebody who you, you look at and you know that they're hurting and you think, oh, that poor person. Or you look at that person and you feel their pain. It's a very different felt sense. And so just to notice it in your own experience when it may have that compassion-like appearance but actually we're quite unaffected by it, that we don't really touch it. We don't stand with suffering. Compassion really helps us to bear that which on one conceptual level would seem unbearable. But with compassion, we find that we do have the steadiness to stay present, to touch gently, to touch tenderly. Look in your own experience in moments when, you know, something re-emerges from the past where we were tormented. We felt a, just a brutality. I mean, as human beings, we can be so hard on ourselves or so hard on other people that they never do anything that creates suffering or harm and judge them if they do something unskillful. And yet, so sometimes in... in touching into these moments where it, it really is a pain that in one level feels unbearable, but just as the heart softens and we qu- call upon qualities that support compassion, such as forgiveness, patience, acceptance, as we allow these qualities to be there, we find that we can bear witness and look to how we can alleviate the suffering, the responsiveness. Whether it's through just the seeing, the bearing witness, or the wisdom element of it, 
or whether it's through action. It's always important to remember that compassion can and does include action in the world that we live in. Because we live in a world where the suffering is not just to ourselves as human beings, to each other, it's to the planet. Now when we look at the environment and what's happening in the environment, all of the harm that's coming, there's great suffering. Now just thinking of places on the planet right now where people have trouble just taking a breath because the air is so bad. There needs to be the pull of action, the pull to respond, to do something that comes through in not just looking, bearing witness, but is based in a wise response to suffering. I'd like to share something from a woman named Nina Wise. Um, I think there's something just very down to earth in what she says. When I began to practice Buddhism, I learned that the Buddha presented a methodology for freedom from suffering. I imagined this meant I could manage life's myriad 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 challenges in a state of steady, unmeditated bliss. As my practice deepened, I grew to understand that freedom is not about resting in sublime equanimity, despite the suffering of loved ones and strangers. Freedom is about the willingness to feel deeply. Freedom is about the willingness to fall apart. Freedom is about holding on to nothing. And that the heart of that letting go, that disillusion, that surrender, you discover something sublime and unspeakably heartbreakingly raw. Call it love. Call it compassion. Call it kindness. Call it redemption. A bodhisattva suffers willingly, Sokni Rinpoche had said, and with the willingness to suffer emerges a profound joy. Freedom that embraces what is acceptable and rejects what is not freedom. And what is not is not freedom, sorry. Freedom that embraces what is acceptable and rejects what is not freedom. (laughs) And rejects what is not is not freedom. (laughs) Sorry, there's a comma missing. (laughs) Freedom is wholly democratic. Freedom includes everything. Freedom is wholly democratic. I love that. It includes everything. Uh, You know, it's let ourselves be human. And out of that, there's a naturalness that is wise, compassionate. We keep fighting our humanity as if there's this ideal human being that doesn't embrace what is right now. 
letting ourselves be democratically human with no part left out. That's all of it. Think of, think of all the gunk that might have come up today. No part left out. Nothing. Everything. The love, the joy, the frustration, the sorrow. A heart that is so vast, so wide, so all-inclusive, that it can hold it all. And it's not broken, destroyed, not tainted. speaking about compassion, I'd like to speak about it in its broadest sense, and that is in the quality of bodhicitta. Bodhi meaning awakened, and citta, heart-mind. The awakened heart-mind. And how within our hearts and minds we can have this call of compassion be so vast that it includes not just the cry to alleviate our own suffering, but the cry to alleviate our own suffering so that we can help all beings to do the same. That's the vastness of the potential of our hearts. Bodhicitta is, well, there's two levels to bodhicitta. The first is that of aspiration, bodhicitta, where we hold this aspiration within our hearts. And this we can do every day as we sit down to practice, just in the remembering of why we're doing this and seeing. Can we let our aspiration be this vast? And I know, (laughs) felt experience, that that sounds big and lofty to this little being. That that feels like, whoa, what could I possibly do within the vastness of that aspiration? But that aspiration holds within it such a power, such a strength that I'm going to put everything behind this moment of my practice to let it be, to let its fruits reach that far, that expansive. And there's something about that I've seen about that inspiration to help others that is really quite infectious and important. You know, and I've watched in my life how it became easier to do something for somebody else than myself. And I really see this in, in a simple way. 
in the realm of cooking. <laughs> I'm not a great cook. It's not you know, something that I just love to do, as I seem to have a lot of friends who fortunately love to cook. <laughs> um, but you know, cooking is something I do uh, when I have to. And if there's somebody coming over to dinner, I'm happy to cook. And I want to I wanna cook the best that I can. But if I'm at home alone and I'm preparing a meal, I'm just as likely to eat a raw carrot. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with raw carrots. In fact, I think they're quite healthy. But I just see how that inspiration that I can get from others can really light up energy within myself. And I really started to see this when I began to teach. That, you know, certainly I came to practice just out of the desire to get out of my own suffering. But... um, when I started to teach, I really began to see the more that I understand suffering in my own mind, the more I can help others. And in the seeing that, that inspired me to look more closely. And so it's a way that when we do this practice, we can really engage our hearts. We can really tap into that energy we can, you know, and let, let it be vast because that calls forth all that energy that is there. And then we're not limited, not limiting our minds in the result. You know, it would be easy to collapse and say, I can't do this, you know. I, I don't have these capacities. I'm just a little peon in this world. And, you know, But if we just simply rest in that intention, that aspiration, it's so beautiful. This is from Yangi Mingar Rinpoche, um, one of my teachers. He says, the intention alone has such power that as you work with it, your mind will become stronger your mental afflictions will diminish. You'll become more skillful in helping other beings, and in so doing, you'll create the causes and conditions for your own well-being. It has a funny effect where the benefit comes back, even though it's not focused on the I, me, mine. Because of that broadness, because of that, that immensity of the intention, the vision of vastness, and the movement of the heart in the response to that, the energy it brings, it enlivens, invigorates. And it's wholesome. And that's its beauty. We're just doing the practice from a wholesome place. And, and so then, of course, we have the aspiration, but we also have to have the application. We also have to apply you know, it's like we have to take the steps to put this in motion. And so we do the practice. We do it the best we can. You know, that's one way. The practice that we're doing is so tied to the realization of this awakened mind-heart. And so, you know, we just do the best that we can. And we hold that with kindness. This is application, bodhicitta. 
We live honoring the precepts. We live with a, an integrity, an uprightness. No, we take care. We, we live with respect for all life. This is application bodhicitta. We live just by doing the virtue of doing this practice. We, we strengthen the paramitas. We strengthen the qualities of loving-kindness, um, equanimity, wisdom, effort, patience, resolve, renunciation. I'm going backwards in the list. But, um, ethical conduct, um, uh, generosity. And you know this aspiration bodhicitta is a real generosity of heart. And generosity is the first teaching that the Buddha gave when people came to him. Because it is so useful, it helps the mind to be pliable, less fixated. And so when we practice with this um, aspiration and application of bodhicitta, it really helps the mind to, to be softer, kinder, more vulnerable, allowing. It really turns our mind in the right direction. And this is you know, what we see over and over again, the different ways that we have to reorient our view to be reflective of reality rather than to be caught in that misperception. So we're orienting the mind towards awakening, towards these qualities of heart and mind. There's a, a really simple way that Trungpa Rinpoche, whom he, he al- always had such a good way of bringing you know, what seems lofty down to earth, because it's so easy to hear about bodhicitta and have it seem lofty. And he, he said something, let's see. Relative bodhicitta comes from the simplest basic experience that you can have a tender heart in any situation. Can we have the willingness to practice this? To have a tender heart in any situation. This being relative bodhicitta. And then there's the absolute bodhicitta. And that is the recognition of this awakened mind-heart. That is the deep insight into the empty, aware nature of mind. Into the absence of self-centeredness. Into a mind that is free from greed, hatred, and aversion. This is where we are able to see things just as they are. This is from Shabkar, a Tibetan master. He says, The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, 
intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And this is where we come back to the naturalness of compassion. That when wisdom is there, the heart is ceaselessly responsive. In the absolute level of bodhicitta, we find that the compassion is released from any taint of self. There is no self-referencing, self-cherishing. Simply ceaselessly responsive. I'd like to close with a teaching from Minga Rinpoche. And this is, um, again, just wanting to bring us back to being able to just stay steady in our practice that we're doing here. And to be able to trust, have faith, have confidence in that what we are doing is enough to help us to realize this absolute bodhicitta. He says, but the best part of all is that now, no matter what or how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion, whether we're aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger, or aversion, you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear, anger, and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourselves and others automatically dissolve and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables becomes as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the end of suffering.
Thank you for listening.